It's the worst nightmare for every parent. An abducted child, a missing child. Maybe you've passed by a billboard and seen this and it made your heart sink. Or maybe you've turned to your phone when it was buzzing and you've noticed the amber alert that made you really sad. Maybe you've received a forwarded email from a friend detailing a horrific story of a child that's been in incredible distress. And it makes your hairs on the back of your neck to stand up on end. We train our children. We base it out of this horrible situation. And so we say stranger and we teach them to say stranger danger, stranger danger, stranger danger. And certainly, even if there's just one child that's abducted, kidnapped, missing, it's a tragedy for any particular family beyond compare. And yet, did you know that we have 70 million children about right now in the United States? That only about 1% of reported children who go missing are as the result of a stranger? that 99.8% of children that are reported missing come home safe and sound, and that in all of the United States, in a given year, there are roughly only 100 children that go missing for any prolonged period of time because of a stranger. Stranger danger, stranger danger, stranger danger. Is it me, or have we turned precaution into paranoia? We're in the midst of a series where we're talking about a variety of fears that we face as a people. We're calling this unafraid, and we believe that we live in a meteor shower of what-ifs, that this is an age of anxiety. And today, we're talking about the fear of the stranger, the fear of the other, the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the one that you don't know. And the question that's behind that fear is, what if that person isn't safe? And the Bible has some very direct words about this. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 10. These are from the lips of Moses as God's people are moving from being strangers and slaves in Egypt through the trial of the wilderness and entering into a land of promise. Moses says this to God's people long ago and to you and me today. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God and mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. 
For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him. Hold fast to him. Take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders. You saw with your own eyes your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't just teach us to love our friends, to love our family, to love our community, to love those who are easy to love. The Bible tells us that we're called to love the stranger, the other, the unfamiliar, the foreigner. I don't know if we appreciate how radical this call and command is. You know, when we picked this series about a year ago and we were picking the different fears in the midst of this series, it seemed like a good idea to preach on the fear of the stranger. Not really thinking through at the time how, what a political minefield this sermon is, right? that you're kind of listening to this sermon and you're like, oh, what is he going to say? Let's put it on CNN. Well, I really have zero desire to get embroiled in a political debate. I actually want to do something deeper. I want to do something more personal than talk about policy. You know, if you're trying to shape your policy by the Bible and you go to the Bible because you have a particular conviction, you're probably going to find what you're looking for in the Bible. Like, for example, if, if you're really bent on that what we need today is security, you're going to go to the Bible and you're going to discover the story of Nehemiah because there was a time during God's people where their highest need was security, that the walls had crumbled, that they were susceptible to every possible whim and attack of others, and that God raised up Nehemiah to be able to be in the midst of the city and for them to restore the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem so that they could be a community again. Or maybe you're of a different political persuasion, and for you, it's not so much about security, it's about mercy, and you go to the Bible and you see stories that's like this portrayed in a Van Gogh painting. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, and for you, it's not about security, it's about mercy. Well, I actually think that both of these things are in the Bible for a reason, that they're a tension and that anybody who is trying to tell you that all we need is security or that all we need is hospitality isn't telling you the whole story because these two things play off of one another and it's never, ever fully resolved on this side of glory. No, I want to do something deeper than a political debate. I want to enter into the space where the Bible commands you and me over and over again, not about the laws of the land, although that's important, but do you love the stranger? Do you love the other? Do you love the foreigner in your midst? There's no wiggle room around this command. 
And if we're paying attention to what Moses says, he kind of breaks it down into four little bits of wisdom here where he says that you and I are called to remember your story, not to play favorites, to serve the Lord your God, and to open your heart. To remember your story, don't play favorites, serve the Lord your God, and to open your heart. Let's talk about each of these. The first one is to remember your story. It wasn't that long ago that I had received a gift. It was kind of a strange gift because the nature of that gift was that there was a little tube and I was supposed to spit inside that tube, seal it up, put it in a box, and to mail it off, and then they were going to email me a report about my ancestry. How many of you have done some sort of ancestry report? Raise your hand if you've done this. So a lot of you have done this. It's a I mean, for some people, it's pretty boring. For others, it's a pretty eye-opening experience. I called my parents before I did this. I said, if you got anything to tell me, you better tell me now. (laughs) And they're like, no, it's going to be really boring. Well, turns out it was more interesting than I thought. Let me show you my DNA ancestry here up on the screen. It wasn't really surprising that most of my near relatives came from Ireland and Scotland and then on my dad's side of the family that it was Germany and that they had to flee to Eastern Europe and even to Russia. I knew about the Northern European history. But boy, you go back a little further and I'm 0.2% Ashkenazi Jewish. That's why you can call me rabbi and not just pastor. In that same kind of time frame, I am also 0.1% Native American. It means that six to eight generations ago, I had like some great, 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 great grandparent who was 100% Native American. I mean, I have no idea what was going on there, but that's pretty interesting. I'm also 0.1% broadly Chinese or Asian. (laughs) Wow. Had no idea. My favorite 23andMe story came from a time that we were having dinner um, with this family, and we were talking, swapping stories about kind of the DNA testing and the revelations that come. And there was this one woman who's like, oh my gosh, I got to tell you, this 23andMe thing, it like rocked our world. And I'm like, well, tell the story. And she said, well, my dad, based on our heritage, is one of the largest private art collectors of oil paintings of, and I think it was Cherokee, Cherokee tribal leaders. And he's so proud of this. It's like his passion and his hobby outside of work. And I'm like, well, that's really interesting. And she's like, yeah, so we did this 23andMe thing, and we discovered that we have 0% Native American in our heritage. And I'm like, well, what are you? And she's like, we're like 100% Jewish. What do you do with the art collection when you discover that? Well, you do this. The Bible teaches us that where you're from isn't nearly as important as where you are going. Think of Rahab. Think of Ruth over and over again. Yes, we have a backstory, and yes, we need to own that backstory, and yes, we need to understand that backstory, but God is also taking you somewhere. And so Moses tells the people, remember this, everybody comes from somewhere, and you came from the promise of Abraham 
And there were only about 70 of you as you entered and raced away from the famine and ended into Egypt. And over the course of 400 years, you became children of the promise as numerous as the stars in the sky. So yes, you've got a story and you need to remember that story. And a part of that story is somewhere along that way, you were a stranger, you were a foreigner. For me and for my family, a story that I know best is that my grandfather had to flee Eastern Germany in World War I, had to flee once again the Bolshevik Revolution when he was in Russia, egg by egg, sold enough eggs in order to find a safe passage to the United States. Remember your story and know that God's taking you somewhere. The second thing that we need to know about loving the stranger is to not play favorites. Let me explain what I mean by this. There was a great study that was done a couple of years ago where they did this with preschoolers. They had like three or four preschool classrooms, and they handed each of the preschoolers either a couple of red T-shirts or a couple of blue T-shirts. They did this at a totally random capacity. There was no rhyme or reason to it other than just every preschooler either had a red shirt or a blue shirt. The teachers were coached and trained. They never referred to the blues and the reds. They never divided them up formally into those two different colors for any different project or event or competition. And yet, after a couple of weeks, just because they had randomly assigned a t-shirt, the children started to behave differently and think differently about who they were. So they interviewed the kids after the experiment was drawing to a conclusion. They asked them questions of, you know, who's better, red t-shirted people or blue t-shirted people? And almost without fail, they would say, oh, you know, red people, they can be pretty good, but no, blue people are better. Or which one's smarter? Yeah, you know, blue people are pretty smart, but red people or even smarter? Which ones can run faster? Which ones are nicer? Which ones are stronger? Every single category randomly handed out t-shirts. This is what social scientists refer to as in-group favoritism, and we can't turn it off. One of the things that you need to realize is that the way that your brain operates is that you cannot help but overly associate and give favoritism to the people that you were like, to the people that you were most similar, to the people that you know the best. You know, we used to think that, we used to think that as long as we didn't talk about race in America, that we would have a race-free society, that that as long, that, that bigotry and hatred and bias, that these were the kinds of things that were learned behaviors. And it turns out that if you actually study human behavior and if you understand human behavior, that that's actually not the case. That the way that your mind works and that my mind works is that we naturally categorize and put like with like together and overly bias towards what we tend to know. And so we've raised an entire generation thinking that they won't be racist or biased in any direction because we never talked about it. And, and so we must be colorblind when the reality is you can't turn this little categorization machine off in your head. 
And before you know it, sometimes you've lumped things together that don't go together in associations, and you have favored one in-group over the out-group, and you have favored the familiar over the unfamiliar. Aren't you glad that God doesn't play favorites? One of the golden threads of the Bible is that God does not show favoritism. It causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Aren't you glad that God doesn't do a background check on you before he decides whether or not to send rain to your lawn? He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Theologically, we refer to this as common grace. God cannot be bribed. He is not Lord of some. He is Lord of all, and he doesn't play favorites. God is not into the in-group favoritism thing. So remember your story. Don't play favorites. Thirdly, serve the Lord your God. This is a common phrase that happens in the Bible, and we often just kind of skip right past it. It's love the Lord your God, serve the Lord your God, obey the Lord your God. It's, it's, it's not just serve God, it's the, it's the Lord your God. C.S. Lewis has a very helpful distinction when he talks about the difference between the mine of possession and the mine of affection. In other words, when we talk about God being my God, it is not that I have the corner of the market our God, that I possess God or I can contain God in any way. No, when I say that God is my God, that's a statement of affection. That's a statement of love. And it's true that God has affection and love for his people and it's unique and it's beautiful and that we are elected not just for salvation, but we're elected for service. That the original call of Abraham that Moses hearkens back to is that yes, he is separating you and he is blessing you, but he is doing so for a reason. He is blessing you to be a blessing to all the nations, to all the peoples of the world. And so this is the task of the church. This is the purpose of Israel. This is what you were called for. That part of serving the Lord your God is that he's the God of all, and he's asked you to bless all. A couple years ago in the Netherlands, there was a terrible attack on a Dutch filmmaker. It was done by Islamic terrorists. And in what was normally a very peaceful country, all of a sudden there were now retaliatory strikes against churches and against mosques. And there was a normal, ordinary pastor, not a celebrity pastor, not a pastor of a big church, not a pastor who had been very active in reconciliation with different religions or races or anything along those lines. Just reading his Bible and saying, you know what? This isn't right. So he walks down the street to the neighborhood mosque and he bangs on the door terrifying the people praying inside. 
And they open the door and they peek out. And this Dutch Reformed ordinary pastor said, I will stand guard on the steps of this mosque until there is peace in our community. And that was not hours, that was not days, that was weeks and months. That that one pastor inspired other pastors and other Christians to come and to take turns and to stand guard at the mosque. And that that act of generosity and grace inspired those who were a part of the mosque to stand guard on the steps of the church as if to say together, not on our watch. Later, the pastor was interviewed, and they asked him why he did it, and he just basically said, Jesus commanded me to love my neighbor and my enemy. Not a big deal. This is what we do. And so remember your story. Don't play favorites. Serve the Lord your God. And open your heart. The way that Moses talks about it, hearkening back to Abraham, is to circumcise your heart to make it vulnerable, to take the most private, precious part of you and to open it up, even at pain, even with it hurts. The contrast to what Moses says is that you either circumcise your heart or you are what he calls a stiff-necked person. The allusion to this is, is actually more literally someone who turns their back or turns their neck on someone. The way that it's later talked about in the Bible is in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Orpah. There's that incredible moment where the tragedy befalls them, and they have this incredible decision to make that there's nothing for them in Moab anymore. And so Naomi gives them permission to leave, and she's going to go back to Bethlehem And Naomi stays with her, and she's like, where you go, I will go, and your people will be my people, and your God, my God, and where you lie, I will lie, and there will I be married, and may the Lord do thus, and even more severely to me, even if death should separate you from me. And so Ruth demonstrates hesed, God's steadfast love, and she stays with Naomi beyond all reason. These two, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, they're foreigners to one another, and yet they stick together. And the name of the other one is Orpah, and Orpah is the Hebrew term. It is a name, but it is also a verb. It means to turn your back. And so while Ruth sticks with her, Orpah walks away, and she turns her back on steadfast love. You have a choice each and every day to turn your back or to open your heart. A guy in my last congregation who I deeply admire, got a chance to travel with and know well, his name's Tom Brock. 
Tom's now a consultant in the educational space. He had an incredible career. He entered into one of the most difficult education school districts in all of Orange County. It's Long Beach, California. It's the place where they had the highest levels of gang kind of violence. It's the highest kind of melting pot of all the different subcultures and religions and races together. It was one of the more complicated areas in order to try to serve. And Tom did this incredible job, first as an administrator, like a principal, and then becoming a superintendent, superintendent of, of turning around many of these schools. And now he helps to go to troubled parts of the country to help them to turn around their schools. And he told the story of one time that there was this one young high schooler who was struggling with some significant discipline problems. Tom said, you need to know that for those of us in education, particularly when you're in administration, if you're not careful, you can get really jaded. You don't think people really change. You kind of categorize them as soon as you see them and size them up. This is the kind of a good student. This is a bad student. This is a good kid. This is a bad kid. And there was something in Tom that said, I'm not going to give up on this one. And so he worked personally with him, helped to provide the kind of structure and boundaries and discipline that this kid needed, worked with the kid's family in order to help to provide that and with teachers. And before you know it, this kid starts to thrive and to flourish and to do better and better in school. And by the time he got to the end of school, he was a star and he applied to the Naval Academy and he got in and he became an officer in the Navy and his career took off. And later he went back to Tom and now he's married and he's got kids and he said, I owe it all to you. You didn't turn your back on me. You didn't give up on me. Tom said this, he said, you cared more for my restoration than you did for my punishment. Tom opened his heart. So you can see why I think this goes far deeper than a policy debate. Yeah, we need to work on the laws of the land. But you know what else we need to do? We need to own our stuff. There's no way to create a system in which no one has to be good. And if the church is to have any moral authority to speak on issues, it's got to heed the very command of our rabbi, our leader, our Messiah, our master. Do you love the stranger? There's no wiggle room. It's hard. Believe me, it's hard. But we are literally tearing our communities apart because we cannot figure out the tension and the reality of, yes, needing security, but at the same time needing sanity, that, yes, we need sanctuary, but also we need the ability to provide mercy, that we need both Nehemiah and the Good Samaritan in the same society. This is what the church needs to do. It needs to confess.
to examine ourselves before we come to the table. Do you love the other? Let's pray.